Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right. Ooh, I gotta let my eyes adjust. Okay, so are you ready? At the end of last week, um, we stopped around... Verse 27, we talked about the fact that some Greeks had come to see Jesus, and um, I want to emphasize one more time, we have one door closing and another opening. Do you see this transition? Um, We have a door that's beginning to close on Judaism, but a door that is beginning to open to the world. We're going to see this contrast here where the Gentiles or the Greeks Um, come to, and they want to see Jesus, and yet the Jews, on the other hand, they've seen it all, and what? They refused to believe, and so uh, when they chose not to see, then they ended up not being able to see, and we're going to see that in just a second. Um, I thought it was really interesting. This is just a thought I had. Um, What are Greeks known for when you think of Greeks? Philosophy. I don't know what y'all said, but it was funny, whatever it was back there in that corner. Like philosophy, wisdom, they're into philosophy and wisdom and all that. I think it's so interesting that if you think, um, we don't know what they're seeking Jesus for or what they're interested in. We just know that he is someone that they have been drawn to. And the Greeks are typically people um, interested or they're all about wisdom. Um, I think it's interesting that here you have at the birth of Jesus, the wise men that come to worship him. And at the last hour, you have these Greeks, these men of wisdom come to, to see him. I think that's a, it's, I'd never seen that before. And I think that's kind of an interesting thought, um, how everything comes to completion. And man, the door is about to be busted wide open to the world. But first, his hour must come. And so at the end of last week, we saw that he gave an analogy that any man could understand. He didn't quote the Old Testament. He said, if a wheat, right, if a seed does not die, it it just remains a kernel of wheat. But it must die, and when it does, then there will be a great duplication. So we see this anticipation of this multiplication that's about to happen, but first, the hour must come. And we also have a hint, right? In order for there to be multiplication or duplication, it it is a death. It is a laying down of life, and that's gonna continue. So look at verse 27. Let's just kind of talk through the end of chapter 12. It says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Um, you realize that John does not talk about the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where he says, Lord, let this cup pass from me like the synoptics. But in this sentence, he tells us, right, about the agony, about the troubling of his soul. I don't think it's a one-time event. I think he was constantly at this time fighting the trouble in his soul. But he's like, what do I say? Let this cup pass from me? No. This is what I came to do. Um, But it's hard. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had to have thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So here we have an incident where the father audibly speaks. Do you know how many of those we've had? Do you know how many of those there are? (laughs) Anytime I ask you a number, just guess three or seven. I don't know. (laughs) What's your thought? Three times. Do you remember where they were? This is just a little, little quiz. Baptism, transfiguration, and this right here. And you want to know what all of them have in common? It's about his death. Baptism is a symbol of death or resurrection. At the transfiguration, when he pulled back his flesh, basically, and they saw him transfigured, the glory of God standing in his glory. Do you remember who he was with? Moses, yeah, the, the disciples there. Who was he talking to? Moses and Elijah. And do you know what he was talking about? It says he was talking about his time of departure. They were there to encourage him about the hour to come. I love that whole scene. Peter goes, listen, this is awesome. Let me just build us some shelters and let's just stay right up here. This is good. Let's just stay here forever. And he's like, boy, you've missed the boat, right? No, this must happen so that glory will happen in the end. And trust me, you're going to want to build a shelter there, but you won't have to because it'll be a mansion. Um, So it's all about his death. And in this case, and he's saying, this was not for me. This was for you. And here are three things he says that are going to come out of it. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of the world. So what is about to happen, his hour, this is what all judgment will hinge on. Literally. What did you do with Jesus? All judgment will be right there. The light has come into the world. But those who loved their evil deeds and hated the light turned and walked back to the darkness. But for those who walked into the light they realized that their works were done through him, right? John 3, 19, Hoffpower version. This is the judgment. This is it right here. This is the hour. This is everything that, it, uh, that judgment is hinged on. Did you believe? And doesn't that make sense? What is John's mission statement? I have written these things so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ that he is the son of God, and by believing in him. What does that mean? By putting your faith in him, your, your trust in him, and in what? That he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he did, that he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin, he conquered sin and death, he wore the curse, he broke it, he rose again, and he offers you life. If you believe in him, that he is the Christ, that he's the sent one from God to do that, you will be born again, born from above into a new family. John set it up in John chapter 1. For those who receive him, they will be called the children of God, not born by the will of man, but born from above. It all hinges on this moment. And that's what he is saying. 
The judgment of the world hinges on this. Not on behaviors, on this belief. What do you believe about Jesus? That's it. And he, then he says, it also, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Okay, we have this flashback of him being cast out of heaven, but at the cross right there, necessarily did he get cast out from this earth, from roaming this earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. No, but this moment, this hour that Jesus is referring to removed all power. At this moment, he was a defeated foe. I'm no longer slave to sin, or whatever that is. I am a child of God. Right here. He lost his sting. Oh, death, where is thy sting? The minute that happened, he was a defeated foe. Do you realize, for those of us who know Christ Jesus and are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, he has no right over us. None whatsoever. Can he push us around? Yeah, but I have the power of the living God inside of me. I used to tell young people all the time who'd watch all these crazy movies, listen, a believer cannot be possessed by the devil. You're already possessed by the Holy Spirit and you are sealed. It is a deposit guaranteeing who you belong to. You are born from above. Can he cause havoc? Can he push? Can he lay traps? Sure. But listen, you are already, you belong to Jesus. He is a defeated foe, and he is saying this happened in that hour. And lastly, he says, when I am lifted up. Now, what, what is that a reference to in their culture? To be lifted up is the cross, right? Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Does that mean every single person? I don't believe so. I think it believes, means all kinds of men. What did we just have in the little section before? Who came looking for him? The Greeks. He is telling them, this is where it begins. When this grain dies, there will be multiplication like you've never seen. One door is closing and another door is opening. And it all hinges on this moment right here. Because in this moment right here will be the judgment of the world. The enemy will be defeated. And it is by this moment that I will begin to draw all men to me. The mystery that Paul talked about, about Gentile and Jew together in Christ Jesus forming one family. That is the mystery. And it all hinges on what? This hour. It's come down to this hour. He says, um, well, let's continue to read verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What does this remind you of? I mean, there's a lot. But in your mind, I want to know, are you thinking like John right now? The minute you hear this, this section, your mind should have gone back to John chapter 1. What was his whole theme? And the light, the life light has come into the world right? He is the light of men. 
Many will receive, his own did not receive him, but for those who did, right? And then do you remember in John 8, what does he say? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will no longer walk in darkness. Do you realize this is his last public ministry going on? He's tying it right back together. He is the light. I am the light of the world. You only have me for a little while longer. Follow me while you have me. There is light and there is darkness. It will all hinge on this moment. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and and hid himself from them. That's interesting, huh? Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded his eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. One more time, we see this right here. Such a hard concept. They did not believe. That is in, you might want to circle this in your scripture, 37, verse 37. They did not believe. So therefore, in 39, it says what? They could not. It goes back to the whole conversation when they come to him and say, could you just speak plainly, please? And he's like, speak plainly. I've spoken plainly. Not only that, all of my signs have pointed to where I am. There is literally nothing more I can say or show you. I have told you I am sent by God. Before Abraham was, I am. The Father and I are one I have shown you literally by my signs that what I say is true, that I have the power to back up my words. I have shown you that I am the fulfillment of every prophecy. I've shown you that I'm the fulfillment of all of your institutions and all of your, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am in the flesh. And you say, speak plainly? I've spoken plainly. The fact is, you will not believe, therefore you cannot see. There is some kind of principle here that if you come to the point where you refuse to see, there will come a time where you will not have the ability. I don't know how that works. But in here, I believe, listen, how in the world did the capstone become the stumbling stone? Because they closed their eyes and they tripped over it. You trip over something that's right there in the middle of the road. It's plain. It's there. He's the cornerstone to everything. This is the moment that everything is hinged on. And you closed your eyes and you would not see. And therefore, he hid himself from you. And now you what? Cannot see. You go back through the Old Testament, that's so hard when you hear, and God hardened his heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Kids have a hard time with that. But before that, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It seems to me whatever decision we make, God just magnifies whatever decision we've already made. 
And so we have this concept here, this principle, that if over time you refuse, you will not see, there comes a time where you will not be able, and he is hidden from you. Look at his last discourse in public. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. How many times is he saying sent? Are you getting the picture? He is the sent one. And keep that in mind as we go to talk about the disciples when he tells them that the messenger is not greater than the one who has sent them. Because pretty soon, what are they going to be? The sent ones. Okay? So I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He lit it up, people. We will either follow the light or we will go back to the darkness. There's really nothing in between, right? I mean, if the light comes, it shines. It cannot be missed. You must intentionally go back to darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. It's not about behaviors. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word. There's some kind of commandment, singular, that must be kept in order for salvation. What is it? Look and live. As the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the Son of God must be lifted up. If you want salvation, what? Look and live. Believe on the name of Jesus and thou shalt be saved. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The end. He ties everything he's been saying back up together. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will no longer walk in darkness. If you believe that I am who I say I am, you will be saved. This is what he's saying in summary. Verse 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, hold on, let me get to where I need to go. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. <clears throat> Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I just love stinking Peter. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but is completely clean, and you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, and I'm going to read that in just a second, so let's break this up. It says that he knew his hour had come. His hour. Sometimes it's fun that when you, you look at a verse, stress different words and see how, that, see how it applies to you. He knew his hour. So if I stress that, what does that make you feel? It's his hour. Literally, no one else's. No one else could accomplish what he would. The salvation of the world stood in balance. He had totally revealed who he was if one had eyes to see. And now it all hinged on him. He must finish the job. Do you realize if he doesn't follow through with the hour, what are all the words? What are all the claims? What are all the signs? This is his hour. You do realize he was born to die. I mean, that's the whole Christmas story in a nutshell, to be honest. Why did he come with shepherds in Bethlehem? They were Passover shepherds. They would have recognized. He said, this will be the sign So this will be the sign to you. So something is important about what's about to happen. He swaddled in long white linen cloths, to be quite honest, like a little mummy. As they traveled on long journeys, they would take long strips of linen, wrap it around their waist as they traveled, because if someone was injured along the way, they would have to bind up that, uh, that injury or prepare them for burial. So they had that on hand. So this is what they swaddled their little baby in. So you see a baby almost wrapped in burial clothes. And he's laying up in a manger. If you go to Israel, you will not see little wooden mangers on the ground. Most of the time, you will see mangers carved in the side of the caves that they would bring in to bring the sheep into shelter or ginormous limestone troughs that have been carved out as, as with high sides. So think about it. These are Passover shepherds. If they brought the sheep in and the little babies at night, what would they do with them? Protect them. They would put them up in the mangers uh, as protection because if the other ones were stirred or something happened and they were injured, you just lost money. That was not going to be an acceptable sacrifice for Passover. So you have these little lambs that have been protected. So he says, this will be a sign to you. Today in the city of David is born a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. It will be a baby wrapped in burial clothes and lying in protection. He is the Lamb of God. And he's showing them this is his hour. He was born to die. Everything points to this. And only Jesus can do it. Only him. He knew that this was his hour to bear. But then the other word that I stress is he knew. Think about that. He knew it was here. It was right here. I mean, time is significantly limited with such little time left. What would he take time to teach his disciples? What was so important that he wanted to take the last few moments to teach them? Well, it's the washing of the feet. And maybe it's because on the way into dinner, Luke 22 tells us, They were arguing, right? 
<clears throat> have you ever felt that when you, like, I don't know about you, but when you're looking forward to just a deeply spiritual moment with your family and you're going for this precious time, maybe it's Christmas Eve or <clears throat> Easter, and it's supposed to be significantly precious and spiritual. And what is the car ride like? Arguing over selfishness. Something that happened or wasn't fair or they didn't get what they wanted or whatever, and they are arguing in the background. You're thinking, we are driving, at least I'm thinking, we are driving to church at a moment where we are recognizing that the king of kings put on flesh and died for us. And you fools, I am raising two of the most selfish people I've ever seen in my life. Or you're going to Easter. It kind of brings back that moment, like for me. His little children. Matter of fact, he calls them little children in just a second. Because they are bickering the whole way. It's his hour. The weight of the world is on his shoulders. His soul, he has already said once, is very troubled and heavy. And these yahoos are walking in arguing about who is the greatest amongst them. Right? Then, on top of that, the very next line is it tells us that we also know, or he is aware, that the devil has already made up his mind that he's using Judas to betray him. In other words, the ball is already in motion. So he has these little children arguing over who is the greatest, and he already knows, of course, that one of them has betrayed him. This is what he is walking into in this moment of the Passover, knowing who's the Passover lamb this year. He is. And so in this last hour, what is the most important lesson that he needs to teach them? Whew, how about some humility? And you wonder if he's like, have they learned nothing let me ask you this, would they be arguing about this if they knew what Jesus was to about to experience on the cross? If they were aware? Nope. But if he was a king about to free them from the Romans and establish a free Israel, then would hierarchy be important? Yes. Where is their head? Their head is exactly where every other head in Israel is that was waving palm branches, uh, hoping that he was their king, their Messiah, their Judas Maccabeus. And that is where their head was, and they're arguing over who is the greatest. They come to dinner. <clears throat> they come to the dinner before them debating this. By the way, it was customary that the lowest servant would wash the feet <clears throat> my goodness, I can't even speak today, <clears throat> would wash the feet of the guests as they came into the house, and especially at a formal meal. And how do we know this is a formal meal? Because they're reclining at the table. That's why it's a former meal. But for some reason, this hadn't happened. So they were reclining at the table. If they reclined, the way they would do it is they reclined on their left arm. They ate with their right that tells you kind of who was on what side. So it tells you that John was really at his breast and on the left side was Judas. But here they are reclining, but their feet are kind of behind them. So I want you to think about these feet for a minute. 
I think it's good to get pictures in your mind. These are some nasty feet, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you, I've had nasty feet before because y'all know I like to hike and I like to camp. And this cracked me up because I was thinking, you know, this last summer when I camped up in Flagstaff, when it, before I went to the RV park, you know, when I was boondocking, when I was a pioneer, before my generators got stolen. It was so dirty out there that I thought my dad was going to have a heart attack because he was like, you are living in a box of kindling. Like, this place is going to ignite any second, Shannon. Get out of here. Like, dirt, dust everywhere. You couldn't keep it down. It was that orangey kind, and so it was kind of nasty. But I decided one day with my friend we were going to go into Flagstaff and get our toes done. Well, I did not pay these women to insult me. <laughs> But they did. <laughs> and I had my feet down there, and they were like, ooh, you camping? I said, yes, I'm camping. Ooh, you camping. Your, your feet rough. <laughs> and I'm like, well, <laughs> you know. But that's just, I mean, what, three weeks of camp? These people had opened, and I wore tennis shoes. These people had open-toed shoes. Animals were in and out of the streets. Uh, if you've watched The Chosen, you kind of have in your mind the nastiness that was going on in all the streets. Let me tell you, their feet were raunchy. They were dirty, and they smelled. They smelled. And if, you're, if you've ever smelled, I don't know, did any of your kids have the stinkiest feet on the planet? No, y'all are precious. Where you go in the dressing room, and you're like, girl, keep your shoes on. Like, do not take those off, or the little boys in those sandals. But do you want to recline at a table with that smell? No. Everybody ignored it. There was no servant there to do it. They ignored it, and they go on in, and they're reclining to eat. And I can't imagine the nasty aroma that is in the air. Um, and to be quite honest... By the way, I, I think they were arguing about their hierarchy. They're arguing about their seat. Because do you realize the most important sat by the host? Have you ever done that too? Have you ever watched people finagle so that they could sit closer to the host because it meant they're more important? Right? I'm thinking if you invited me, I'm already friends with you. I want to meet these people that are down the table. Right? But they wanted, so who's the most important? They were probably arguing about where to put the place setting. You know, the tag. And they come in and ignore everything that is happening. I'm sure many of the disciples would have volunteered to wash Jesus' feet. A matter of fact, you would have instances where um, students would wash their teacher's feet or children would wash their parents' feet. It was always in that hierarchy of honor, though. And, and by the way, that was still a really big um, honorable thing to do, even for a teacher to wash the master's feet. It was really for the lowest servant. But I'm sure they, they would have washed their master's feet. But by doing that, they would then be opening themselves up to chance that they would have to wash the other disciples' feet. And that, that they just will not do. That, is that would have just been intolerable to them, and that would be like admitting their inferiority to each other. And what had they been arguing about when they came in? Who is the greatest? 
not who was the most humble. And so, therefore, they didn't do it. And I love this. Do not miss this section right here where it says, I put, yet the one who, quote, the father had given all things into his hands. Do you see that? You got to follow along with me because it won't make sense. I got to find it. Oh, there it is. Verse three, Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and removed his outer garment. What? That God had put all things into his hands? Think about these hands. These are the hands that hold all things together. All things are created by him and all things are held together by him. These are the hands of the creator, the logos. Do you remember that? The divine reason that brings order out of chaos. These hands, the hands that formed mankind. He is the life light. He is the one, in other words, that has absolute authority and power over all things. What would you do with that kind of power? Take over the world. I mean, you can, can't you just see any kind of crazy movie you've ever watched of mankind that gets drunk with power? Most of the time with power comes pride and arrogance and depravity. What would you do with that kind of power? I bet there's one thing you wouldn't do. Act like a servant. He acted what he did instead of giving a lesson with his mouth. He acted out a parable. Oh my goodness. See, this gives me chills because I can picture it. He didn't say a thing. They've been arguing like fools, like children walking in the door. Nobody even washed his feet. They didn't wash each other's feet. They're reclining at the table, still probably worried about where they're seated. Seated. I'm from Arkansas, sorry. And there's a smell in the room that everybody's ignoring. No one's doing anything about because they, they'll refuse to humble themselves to do it. But the one that the father had placed all things into his hands knew where he came from and knew where he was going. He got up and became the servant. He's acting out a parable to them. And to be quite honest, uh, <clears throat> he's acting out the parable of the cross. This is what he's doing. He's acting out the cross before it happens. Why? Because actions speak louder than words. Um, my friend Derek Kynes read the story the other day, and I thought, oh, it's so appropriate for this lesson right now. It's the story of Doug Nichols. Here it is. In 1967, Doug Nichols was serving as a missionary in India when he contracted tuberculosis. He was sent to a sanitarium to recuperate. Though he was not living on much more money than the people from India in the sanitarium, they thought that because he was an American, he had to be rich. Doug said, they didn't know that I was just as broke as they were. <clears throat> when he was hospitalized, Doug unsuccessfully tried to reach some of the patients for Christ. When he offered them tracts or Gospels of John, they politely refused isn't it funny that it was the gospel of John? <clears throat> it was obvious that the patients wanted nothing to do with him or his God. 
Doug grew discouraged and wondered why God had allowed him to be there. Doug was often, was often awakened in the night by the sound of coughing from him as well as the other patients. But then, what would you expect in a TB ward of a sanitarium? Unable to sleep because of his coughing, early one morning, Doug noticed an old man to trying to sit on the edge of the bed. But because of his weakness, he would fall back exhausted. The old man finally lay still and cried. Early the next morning, the same scene repeated itself. Then later in the morning, the smell that began to permeate the room revealed the obvious. The old man had, the old man had been trying to get up and go to the restroom. Doug said the nurses were very agitated and angry because they had to clean up the mess. One of the nurses even slapped him in anger. The man was completely embarrassed and curled up into a ball and wept. The next morning, Doug noticed the old man was again trying to generate enough strength to get himself out of the bed. This time, Doug got out of the bed, went over to where the old man was, put one arm around his head and neck and the other under his legs and gently carried him to the restroom. When he had finished, Doug carried him back to his bed. The old man, speaking in a language that Doug did not understand, thanked him profusely and then kissed him on the cheek. But the story doesn't end there. Eventually, Doug went back to sleep. In the morning, he awakened to a hot cup of tea served to him by another patient who spoke no English. After the patient served the tea, he made motions indicating that he wanted one of Doug's tracks. Doug said, all throughout the day, people came to me asking for gospel tracts. This included the nurses, hospital interns, the doctors, until everyone in the hospital had a tract, a booklet, or Gospel of John. Over the next few days, he adds, several told me they trusted Christ as Savior as a result of reading the good news. Doug Nichols said, I simply took an old man to the bathroom. Anyone could have done that. Actions speak louder than words. He chose in this last hour to address this, but not with words. He literally acted out the parable of the cross. It's stunning thinking about it. When you have all power, you know it, you are secure. This is a principle I really want to hit. This would be a great principle to journal about. When you know who you are, you don't have to prove it. Remember what it said before he did this. All power had been placed in his hands. He knew that he had come from the Father and that he was about to return to the Father. How was he able to do this, such serving, such giving? When you know who you are, you don't have to prove it. Your security comes from your identity. Your security comes from your identity. You don't have to argue who is the greatest when you know who you are. And we're the greatest because of what? We've first been loved by the greatest. We are daughters of the king. I'm not sure we can love well or serve well until we first what? Know that. Because it's in our lack and our insecurity that either makes us prideful, boastful, to make sure everybody else knows what we actually don't know, or it makes us so needy ourselves that we're unable to serve. We have to know what? 
who we are or whose we are. He knew exactly who he was. He had nothing to prove. He knew that he had come from the Father and he would return to the Father. Do we know who we are? Sometimes we have a lifetime of hearing other people tell us who they think we are. And it takes a while to get those voices out of our head. But if we can get those voices out of our head and say, no, no, I know who I am. I know whose I am. And I'm going to love out of that. I think that is a huge piece of importance. You know, we, we look inward to understand. And once we do that, we look to him to serve, to follow. We have to do the inner work to find out where's the lack. What lies am I believing? What is going on? And we do that inner work and we take the lie and we put a truth on top of it. But when it comes to serving, we can't look inward. We have to look at him and follow him. And so I think there's a, right in there, there's a great amount of work to be done in journaling. And the fact that when it says, um, Jesus, knowing that the father had given him all things in his hands, he was confident and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. It was out of that that he was able to remove his outer garment and wrap that towel around his waist. I believe it all hinges on knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. And out of that, knowing his great love for you, that allows us to turn and have a great love for other people. But the first has to be known, has to be accomplished. Guzik does an amazing thing in his commentary when he shows how this is a beautiful parable of the cross. So I want you to see some of these points and you can write it down. And I think you could fill in all kinds of stuff around this. But it says he rose from supper. So he left the comfort of that suffer, supper. Well, he also rose from his throne. Remember, before Abraham was, I am. Where was he before he put on flesh? seated with the Father. He left the throne of glory. And it says that at this dinner, he laid aside his outer garment. Let me read you a couple of verses. Philippians 2.6. In Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Beautiful. That goes right with that. John 10, 18 reminds us where it says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. I love the fact that in this story, he takes off his garment and lays it down. But what does he do when he's done? He picks that right back up. And so you have this. So he laid aside his garment. He laid aside his glory. He took a towel and he girded it, tied it around his waist. He took on the form of a servant. He poured water into a basin. He poured his blood out on the cross. And when he was finished... He sat back down at the table. And when he was finished, what? 
He sat down at the right hand of the Father. This parable was the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. Scripture says, cursed is the one who dies on a tree. The hands that held all things together wash their feet. What excuse do I have? The hands that held all things together wash their feet. Commentator Bruce says this, the form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. It was revealed in the form of a servant. Where do you think Peter learned the concept of 1 Peter 5.5? Look at that, 1 Peter 5.5. He says this, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That literally means wrap the apron of humility around you. That's what that means. Let me read it again. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. What does that mean? Tie that towel around your waist. Take on the form of a servant. Where do you think Peter learned that? Right here. When he saw the one who all things had been put in his hand, who had come from God and was returning to God, he's the one that got up from that dinner and took his outer garment, his glory off, and wrapped the role of servant around his waist and with those same hands washed their feet. That's where he learned it. I don't think Peter was unique in his feelings, by the way, in this situation. I just think Peter's the one that always opens his mouth. Don't you hate that? Sometimes don't you hate being that person? Because the one that opens your mouth is the one that gets written down in the pages and is remembered for what you said, right? Sometimes you're just like, when you get the pushback, you're like, whatever. You know half the room was thinking it. I'm just the stupid one that opened her mouth and said it, right? I love Peter. You know where you stand with Peter. You know what he's thinking. You know what he's feeling. It's all there. And he says, you are going to wash my feet? There's a couple of um, principles here for us. The story shows that there is no one too great to serve. That's the first one, right? There is no one too great to serve. Jesus's actions, in contrast, points out their pride. He didn't have to give them a lecture. This silent, this silent parable did the job, okay? So one of the main things is he's showing there is no one too great to serve because I am the king of kings and lord of lords and I am serving you. And I didn't need to say anything because my sheer action told you guys the deal. You felt it, all right? And by the way, that happens way... Uh, that's a better thing with our children. How often do we say they're going to learn from what we do way more than what we say? So try to think about a lesson you want to give them by, by just shocking them in what you do, that you just took off your outer garment, wrapped yourself in a towel, and you served. And so they get that concept. But there's a second concept here I want you to see. The story also shows that no one is too great to, to be served that no one is too great to be served. There was an uncomfortability in Jesus watching, washing his feet. 
allowing someone so great to meet his need. A humility in the allowing. A vulnerability. Very uncomfortable for a self-reliant man. But can I just tell you right now, what was the lesson? There is no self-reliance at the cross. Temple said this in his commentary. Sometimes we show a servant's heart by accepting the service of others for us. If we only serve and refuse to be served, it can be a sign of deeply rooted and well-hidden pride. Man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much for there can be much pride and condescension in our giving of service. So there can be pride in refusing to serve, and there can be pride in refusing to be served, and both of those. And to be quite honest, um, it starts with the ability to be served, to see your need, and to accept the gift. Jesus even showed this uh, at the woman at the well. Do you remember? He asked her for a service, showing his love and need for her. And so how often, and it makes you wonder, do you know how many times Judas is talked about, about the poor, the poor, the poor? It's always brought up around him. Oh, they thought he left to go feed the poor. So could he have been quite the server? But yet what? We know There was deep, deep pride in there. Sometimes the helper is helping more out of pride and recognition than out of true service. And so what Peter was going to have to learn is, no, 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 there is no self-reliance here. You have to accept being served. It starts, salvation starts with recognizing we have a need and allowing this great one to meet that need because we can't do it ourselves. It's hard to be served. How many of you would rather serve than be served? Right? I remember when I had back surgery, um, I, I laid, literally laid on my bed for seven weeks. Could not stand nor sit. I was a nutbag. I was in so much pain that I had to be on pain medicine every three hours. And if not, my mom or my friend Sally was taking me to the hospital to get a morphine shot. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. I was creating images out of the texture on my ceiling I had been laying on my back for so long. I had never appreciated when I was finally healed to be sit up at a table and eat and not eat off my chest laying flat. There was a day where I was so disgusted with my own self. I looked at my friend. I go, I'm disgusted with myself. I'm gross. And she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some pain meds and you're going to get up and you're just going to gut it out and take a shower. And I'm like, okay. So she gave me my medicine, and I, I got up. I was in so much pain, and I'm trying to take a shower. Y'all, I'm so vain. I looked down at my legs, and they were the most disgusting, hairy things you've ever seen in your life. And I couldn't let it go. So I was trying to raise my leg and shave my leg, and I kept dropping the razor. And I'd be like, oh! Well, my friend is laying in my bed. And, you know, these dumb bathrooms don't have any doors in Phoenix, Arizona, so she could hear it all. And she's like, what's going on? I said, I'm trying to shave my stupid legs and I keep dropping the razor and I was about in tears and I had like half of it done. 
And she goes, Shannon, how long have we been friends? I said, I don't know, 30 years. And she goes, I'm coming in. <laughs> I stood there and that woman shaved my legs in that shower. And I remember looking down at her and I'm like, well, this is humbling. You know, and she's hilarious. She like grabbed part of my body. She's like, we need to do some work on this right here. I'm like, shut up. And so, but it's very hard for self-reliant people to take service. We just want to give it and not take it. And when we come back, we're going to finish this story here that to be quite honest, this humility that comes from being a servant starts with the fact that we have to realize that we were not self-reliant. We're not naturally servants. We are naturally the ones that bicker on the way in the door. But when we experience the one, that all power lies in his hand, and he took off his glory and put on the form of servant, and when we realize and accept that in humility, then, then out of that right place, we then begin to serve others in such a way that we too are a walking parable, pointing back because the fact is, in order to follow him, what does he say is necessary? We have to pick up our cross and follow him. And I'm gonna tell you right now, there are certain people I don't want to love that way. I don't. Not at all. If they're in the room, I want to leave. I don't want to serve that way. I don't want to love that way. I don't even want them in my world, if you're like me. But it, I swear, every time I see this, to follow Christ is completely upside down. I told a group on Tuesday night, literally, I need to write down in a journal what I want to do and then do the opposite. And I know that that's the right choice. Because I have to crucify this flesh in order to follow him in this kind of beautiful way. This is just half the story. We'll get back to it next week. But just keep in mind, how about we do this? Anytime we want to do something, just write it down. And then go, okay, what would the exact opposite of that be? And maybe we got to try that, right? Take off that outer garment and wrap that towel around our waist and wash those nasty old feet. This is what we got to do. Lord, thank you so much for today, or maybe not. Lord, this is a tough one. I don't know if I'm thankful for what you did. I'm not thankful for this lesson sometimes. Oh, it's so hard. But God, may your power be strong in me. That's the only way. It has to be God in us. Oh, that hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is how I'm going to bring you glory, is if I follow you in that way, because it is so directly against my nature that it will be a walking parable to others who watch. May I be that kind of servant, not the one who walks in the door worried about where she's going to sit or who is the greatest. Because in your kingdom, the first shall be last. The greatest, the least will be the greatest. So help us to think like you. You showed us the way. Lord, thank you so much that in your hour, the greatest hour of the world, your moment of complete sacrifice and pressure, you took the time to re 
institute or just to reinforce in these disciples what a life of following Jesus would be like when you wash their feet. I don't believe they ever forgot it, Lord. I believe this was one of the greatest personal parables you ever acted out for those 12 men. And he, you said to them, you won't understand this now, but you will after, after the cross. And boy, did they ever, because they washed feet until every one of them died. And so God, may we follow you like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.